Hey guys, and welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, I want to talk about a recent talk that I delivered at InfoSecurity Europe. So we were asked to speak at InfoSecurity Europe, and I put together some slides for uh, a talk that I wanted to do about things that have been frustrating me with security. So the talk was called Your Security Awareness Training Isn't Working, which sounds a little bit clickbaity, but really what I was trying to highlight was some lessons that I often see companies teaching staff members that are either uh, incomplete or maybe just... Uh, aren't true anymore. So some old security lessons that that don't necessarily, uh, you know, aren't still relevant. So the way that I put this slide deck together originally was to effectively just write down a list of things that frustrated me that I could turn into lessons for companies. But so that it wasn't just my opinion and the things that I've experienced, I actually pushed it out to Twitter and I asked Twitter, what's the worst security advice you've ever been given? And I got quite a lot of responses to that. I expected just one or two jokes, those kinds of things, but I got maybe 50 or 60 replies. And many of them, as you can imagine, were the same kind of thing. So old security advice being repeated for no reason other than we've always done it this way, or we've previously done this, and people are presuming that that isn't a problem. For example, one of the things that came up and up again was uh, the idea of changing your password frequently. You, know, you should change your password every 30 days, 60 days, something like that. And there's a lot of reasons why that kind of advice isn't true anymore. Those weren't the core lessons that I wanted to concentrate on this time, though, and share with you in this podcast. What I concentrated on for my side of things, the talk that I delivered, was around social engineering tips. Now, we previously did a podcast where I talked about uh, some of the funny stories, some of the things I've got away with doing while social engineering. And I just wanted to kind of build on that, take it to the next level and look at some lessons that you can use for making your security a little bit better just by keeping your staff members more informed. So one of the things that I hear a, a lot of times in security awareness training that I've uh, sat in myself or where I've talked to other training providers about is this idea where... We, we teach staff members to overcome physical access testing. That's the breaking into building side of the job that we've talked about previously with just very simple lessons like beware of tailgaters and staff should challenge potential tailgaters and demand to CID and those kinds of things. And I, I fundamentally don't believe that that kind of thing will be effective. And that's probably quite a strong thing to say, but, but bear with me. I, I've hopefully got some evidence that should support it. But the first point being that Tailgating is only one part of physical access testing. There's lots of ways in which you can gain legitimate access into buildings. This could be where buildings have public access areas, so maybe the canteen or something like that members of the public are allowed into. Or it might be where you work in an office where uh, guests and visitors come in frequently, people for meetings, those kinds of things. At our office, we have a recording studio and auditorium, so we very often get guests come in for events, that kind of thing. It's a common thing to happen. And additionally, there's the idea of just a physical access tester or somebody looking to compromise the physical security of a building could just arrange a meeting. I could pretend to be a stationary salesperson and arrange a meeting with your HR department or something. So this idea of beware of tailgaters is uh, incomplete, if nothing else. 
And during my talk, I showed a couple of slides, uh, some photographs of things that have happened. And I think my favorite example of a security breach that I've seen recently, which highlights the fact that it isn't always tailgating, is uh, somebody had just propped a door open, simple thing like that. So you walk past the door and it, it actually looked closed. It was uh, not propped open entirely. It was just held open kind of by an inch or two. And that kind of thing means that a staff member wouldn't see a tailgater. I don't need to follow a member of staff into the building if, if the door's held open. So obviously seeing this breach to security instead of reporting it to the proper authorities, I stopped initially to take photographs of it to use in the slide deck. And whilst I was doing that, I realized that the thing that had been used to prop the door open was somebody's car keys. So if that's not the best example that you can come across for reasons why tailgating isn't the only way into a building, I don't know what is. But I then built up in the talk and I said that sometimes we don't actually need to gain access to the critical assets that you might think we need to gain access to. When we talk to companies about physical access testing, they often say things like, oh, can you break into our data center or break into our server room to show a vulnerability? And we can certainly attempt that, but we very often don't need to. Um, most of the time, the thing that I would aim for as a hacker, if I'm trying to demonstrate the uh, ability for a criminal to cause business impact, would just be the shop floor where staff members work, because staff members are connected to your network and into your critical IT systems. So if we can gain the same level of access that they have, we can show business risk through that way. And generally, gaining access to a sales floor or something like that, in my experience, is a lot easier than getting access to a data center, certainly. For one thing, data centers don't get all that many visitors so their access control tends to be a little bit more uh, rehearsed and a little bit more on the ball. But a thing to bear in mind is that if we're just trying to gain access to IT systems, to end-user devices, laptops, desktops, those kinds of things, we might not need to go further than the reception area. So I had a photograph in my slide deck where I showed... Um, one organization, they had a security guard as opposed to a receptionist, which is worth noting because it, it is a different job role. But that uh, security guard would do periodic patrols. So I never actually counted how frequently they are, but you can imagine every four hours or so, the security guard would go for a wander and check the building was okay, check all of the doors were locked, check that nobody was holding a door open with their car keys, that kind of thing. But that meant that that front desk, periodically, for a short amount of time, was unattended. And of course, there was laptops uh, on that desk. There was a, a couple of laptops, one hooked into the security guard's uh, email account and the other one hooked into the CCTV so he could take a look at the perimeter of the building and make sure everything was okay. Now, we train staff members to lock PCs, lock laptops when they're unattended, but if that's not technically enforced, people make mistakes. They could lock their PC 99 times out of 100 and you know, luck would have it that the time that I go there is going to be the one time that he doesn't lock it. So I guess that's one thing to bear in mind. As as much as we say beware of tailgaters, just beware of staff members making mistakes, being busy and distracted and forgetting to lock a PC. If that's on an unmanned reception desk or an unmanned front desk, that can be quite the problem. In this particular case, in the photograph that I demonstrated, the security guard had unfortunately left the, the machines unlocked. So I had access to his email, which is obviously useful for sending my own phishing emails and things like that. But the, the funny thing was that I had access to the CCTV system. So whilst I probably didn't have enough time to mess around with it and do the technical kind of attacks. I certainly did have enough time to leave a remote access device, something that would allow me access from a remote location. There's lots of devices that allow that. Some of them have SIM cards in them and those kinds of things. Plug it into a network connection on the back of a PC and then you can dial into that at a later date. But the funny thing was, one of those systems showed the CCTV. 
and it showed, of course, the security guard doing his patrol. So whilst I'm sitting at the security guard's desk, messing around with his email account and trying to send out some internal phishing emails from a valid staff member's email address, you could imagine that I could watch the security guard on his patrol and know how far away he is and therefore know how much time I've got left. So there's a lot of problems that start with this idea of beware of tailgaters, but it, it certainly isn't the whole story. And then one more thing worth pointing out, uh, a lot of businesses these days have uh, anti-tailgate barriers. If you haven't heard that term before, an anti-tailgate barrier is uh, the kind of barrier that they have on, on undergrounds and at train stations these days. You know, you swipe a badge, it lets one person through. I uh, recently tailgated through an anti-tailgate barrier and part of the job is breaking into buildings, so it happens. And when I tailgated through it, um, there is a way that you can follow a person through an anti-tailgate barrier and the barrier doesn't realise two people have gone through and you can do it without setting the alarm off. There's the, a bit of a trick to that, but you know, maybe play around if you've got one at work, see if you can pull it off. In this particular case, however, I didn't quite get the timing right and I did set the barrier alarm off. The problem was the alarm was so quiet that nobody would ever react to it. And also think about it like, the what, what did you do the last time you heard a car alarm go off? How much did you react to that alarm? Probably not so much. But yeah, in this particular case, the barrier alarm was so quiet, it was basically ineffective. Anti-tailgate barriers are good. If you have them, they will minimize the risk of somebody tailgating into an organization, but they're not a perfect solution because of things like alarms not really being effective. Uh, and also just things like sometimes the barriers will break. Sometimes you'll have a power cut. Or in the case of one company that I worked with, Whenever they have a fire drill, they open all of the barriers so as to not impede people leaving the building. And of course, after the fire alarm, everyone goes back in again. So you can sneak into the building during those times, that kind of thing. Anti-tailgate barriers are awesome. RFID uh, key locks on doors are awesome, but they're not perfect. But what about this idea that a lot of companies have of... Um, if you have an open plan office, and therefore there are lots of staff members on your shop floor, as I called it, the, the sales room or wherever, a lot of people would presume, therefore, you're more likely to be tailgated in those areas because there's lots of people. If you have this problem of some staff members aren't personally confident enough to uh, challenge a stranger, if you have lots of people, then maybe that risk is minimized and, well, someone will challenge you if it's not everybody. And that isn't necessarily the case. So I've been reading recently some psychological studies from the late 1960s, would you believe it or not, but they have quite a big impact on this idea of social engineering. So you'll hear terms like the bystander effect or diminished responsibility, and what these are talking about is effectively how people react in groups. So there was a series of experiments done to see how people would react given emergency and non-emergency situations and how they would react if they were on their own, if they were in a small group, if they were in a large group, and importantly, if they were in a group where nobody else in the group reacted. So the first experiment that I paid attention to, just because I, I found it quite funny in the way that it was shocking in the way that people rea reacted, was the, the smoke experiment. The way that this one worked, and this was done, like I say, in the late 1960s, was they got students in to fill in a questionnaire. They put them in a room on their own, gave them a questionnaire and asked them to fill it out. And as they were filling out the questionnaire, they would begin to fill the room with smoke. The idea being, how long would it take for somebody to react to this potentially emergency situation? And as you would imagine, when a person was on their own and a room began to fill with smoke, a significant number of people reacted. In fact, the percentage was 75% of those who were alone reported the smoke. I find that in itself quite surprising, that 
<laughs> there was this uh, 25% who didn't report the fact that the room they're in was filling full of smoke. But, you know, it's differing circumstances. Maybe they were thinking being in the lab, it was part of the experiment or something, and, and they didn't react because of that. But the point of the experiment effectively was to demonstrate that while 75% of people who were alone were in the room filled with smoke, if they got a group of three where two of them were passive confederates, that is, two of them were asked specifically not to react when the smoke came in, they were actors who were in on the experiment, that 75% of people who reacted fell to 10%. So 10% of people who are in a room where other people don't appear to react when emergency takes place themselves won't react. And this, whilst uh, I guess funny, but certainly interesting experiment, can bring a counterpoint to that idea that, oh, we have a sales floor full of people, somebody would challenge you. Certainly if people look around and nobody else is reacting, nobody else is doing anything, these studies show that actually a lot of people wouldn't react. This wasn't the only experiment that was done. The, the same experiment has certainly did a series of experiments, but they're Balance things like uh, whether it was an emergency, whether it was just an ethical situation, those kinds of things. So, for example, they did another experiment where uh, participants were brought into a room. The room was separated in two with a curtain. On the other side of the curtain, the experimenters played a, a tape of a so-called lady in distress. And they uh, played a tape and the audio played of somebody falling over and then mourning about leg injuries, hurting themselves, those kinds of things. And again, we got similar statistics. So in that particular, I guess, non-emergency case, 70% of subjects who were alone reacted and did something to check if the person was okay, going around the curtain, coming in through another door, getting an experimenter to talk to and let them know what's happened, those kinds of things. But only 7% of those with passive confederates reacted. So again, if there's people in the room who don't appear to be reacting... Maybe you wouldn't challenge a stranger. Maybe you wouldn't take the action that we would presume we would. So that's the thing to bear in mind. If your physical access security is relying on, well, somebody will respond, these experiments maybe refute that. So these common security tips of things like, will uh, staff actually challenge strangers? Maybe aren't the case if that was what you were thinking. But also building on that, would it be possible for us as physical access assessors, for uh, people trying to demonstrate that we can break into buildings, could we leverage that? Could we do something like what I mentioned previously? So in the last podcast, I talked about how we send uh, two assessors. The original idea behind that, if you haven't heard that podcast, was that uh, if one of our assessors is challenged, we have a second attempt. You can imagine a customer wouldn't be very happy if we'd charged them a lot of money to do a physical access assessment and then we're immediately compromised and that was the assessment over. So we can send two people for a second shot if the first one doesn't go so well. Sometimes just timing's bad, looks bad, those kinds of things. But maybe using two people or three people, we could build in this bystander effect or this diminished responsibility effect. For example, if somebody challenges one of our staff members, they don't recognise them, they're not wearing a badge, that kind of thing, maybe you could bring in two other assessors who are in on the situation who could just basically play the passive confederate. Or they could come up with something like, oh no, this this person's with us, you don't need to, to worry about it. Or even maybe taking the sense of, oh, well done, you've caught a trespasser. I'll deal with this person, thank you for reporting that, and making the person feel like they did the right thing without actually having the result of the trespasser being reported. So there's a lot of different ways that you could play that diminished responsibility or using multiple people for physical access assessment that would maybe swing the, the balance in the favour of the assessor and not the favour of the security of the company. 
And also at that that point, I guess it's worth pointing out that um, will staff actually remember to lock PCs if that's the end goal of our physical access assessment is breaking in and accessing devices, accessing emails or uh, plugging in remote access devices? Will staff lock them? Probably not, even if you did a very good job of training them so that most of the time they did remember to lock their PCs. Every now and again, they'd probably forget because we're all human. So maybe it's a better idea to have PCs auto-lock. But how do we get over this problem of diminished responsibility and the bystander effect? That's probably a lot harder. I've been thinking about this recently, but maybe a system where staff members can report strangers instead of having to challenge them might be easier. Might be more effective in such that we don't have this problem where we can use multiple assessors to effectively get them to talk down from challenging us or make them feel like they've reported us without actually having done it. If there's a, a process in place where they know they can, you know, fill in a web form or something and have the uh, the person they don't recognize reported. That might also be a benefit for getting over this idea that some staff members don't have the personal confidence to challenge a complete stranger. It's just a, a thing worth considering, but I definitely think those experiments demonstrate that it's possibly a much harder thought, a much harder uh, issue than we might have otherwise considered. So that's physical access, but that's not all there is to social engineering. Of course, there's things like phishing emails, those kinds of things. And I think there's problems there as well in terms of the advice that we give to staff members. <laughs> For one thing, I hear a lot of companies saying things like, you should check a link isn't suspicious before you click it. And I have problems with that in terms of will staff members be able to work out if a link is suspicious? Uh, are we teaching staff members things like don't click links in emails? There's two problems with that. The first being, what if that's a requirement of their job? Then they can't take that advice on. Uh, but also, don't click links in emails. What about other communication methods? So I'll talk about those problems. The first of being emails and the second of how staff members can determine if a link's suspicious or not. Uh, the first thing is, uh, when we say phishing, we generally refer to malicious emails. And sometimes you'll hear other terms like smishing to refer to uh, malicious SMS, so changing the prefix SMS to first smishing. We might hear the term uh, vishing for voice-based phishing. A little while ago, this year, I had a customer who received a malicious fax. So I guess that's phishing, but with an F. <laughs> that doesn't work very well, but believe it or not, uh, recently, we had a customer who had a malicious fax come through. Uh, and this made me laugh uh, because although it was a different form of communication, it, it was the same problem. It was just a traditional scam. So I got a copy of this fax. It was scanned in and sent to me and I, I read the wording and it was exactly what you'd expect from a malicious email, but just through a different medium. And if you're teaching staff members only to be suspicious of emails, okay, maybe they would pick up on the scam fax because it's so unusual, but maybe they wouldn't pick up on the fact that if I call them up, I can convince them to take actions or disclose information over the phone, those kinds of things. So it's more than just email. But the facts, just to round that off, uh, it was talking about an unclaimed insurance policy, and it was that idea of, oh, uh, we have $10 million, and if you send us an administrative fee of $300, we will release this $10 million to you. This is 100% risk-free. It's the kind of uh, 419 scam that you'd expect. How were the uh, attackers expecting you to action this? There was just a, a web address. Okay, it wasn't a link. You couldn't click it on a physical fax, but it's still just a web address. So how do we check if these web addresses are suspicious or not? Well, a part of the problem is a lot of companies tell their staff members, um, 
advice that's not necessarily relevant anymore. So you see a lot of people saying things like, make sure the link is HTTPS. The S stands for secure. And whilst sadly it, it does, that isn't necessarily contextually relevant. Um, HTTPS links these days use a thing called transport layer security. Transport layer security is a protection that ensures that the connection has not been intercepted. And that's a very good thing for web security, for protecting uh, information in transit. It doesn't mean that the website is trustworthy. It just would mean effectively in the case of a phishing email that your connection to my malicious website has not been intercepted. That's not useful. And whilst I understand that that acronym having the S secure can be confusing to staff members, staff aren't idiots. Yeah, they might not be the most technical people. Certainly certain roles in certain companies, they won't be the most technically savvy. But I'm pretty sure they can understand that caveat as long as you explain it to them. So I think one of the takeaways from this is don't dumb down your security awareness training so far that it's no longer accurate. Tell staff members what HTTPS is and what it protects them against and make sure that the connection's secure and nothing more. It certainly doesn't make sure the website is trustworthy. Another thing I see a lot is uh, make sure the spelling in the email or communication is correct. Make sure the spelling is correct. Um, that came from the right place a lot of, I guess, traditional phishing emails had poor use of English, and that was a way of uh, determining if the email was legitimate or not. If the grammar and spelling was awful, it was unlikely to be trustworthy. However, some people remember that is if the spelling is good, if the grammar is good, then therefore it must be trustworthy. And both of those things aren't necessarily true. Yeah, if the spelling's bad, it's bad, but if the spelling's good, it doesn't mean it's trustworthy. Certainly in case of links. So uh, a lot of links that we see in phishing emails are uh, based on typo squatting. So typo squatting is effectively registering a domain that's very similar to the organization's domain, but is misspelled in some way. So instead of facebook.com, maybe it would be forcebook.com or something like that. Uh, a brand that's trusted, hoping the user would trust the email based on the brand, but the spelling is uh, altered so that the domain is available for registration. Register a, a domain, get some email hosting, put a malicious site up there, a clone site, something like that, and you're on your way to doing a phishing email, phishing scam. Um, yep, if you see a typo squatted domain, that means the link is suspicious. However, if the domain is correctly spelled, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Now, of course, you couldn't take the domain that's in use by the organization already, but you could expand it somewhat. So instead of companyname.com, you could have um, companyitservices.com or companysystemalerts.com, something like that. Uh, I actually prefer system alerts. Uh, I think it, it leads a lot of staff members. If you get a company system alerts uh, email address, might make them think it's automated and they wouldn't necessarily be thinking, oh, there's a scammer on the other end of this email. They might just be thinking the system has sent them a notification. So that's the thing that you can play on. But yeah, teaching staff members that uh, the link must be correctly spelled, again, is an oversimplification. The link should be as expected for the brand. It should be the registered domain name. If it's something different, it might be an indicator that it's suspicious. But it's certainly much harder to, to inform staff members what's suspicious and what's not suspicious. Certainly when we consider vulnerabilities like cross-site scripting, as this is audio-based and I can't easily demonstrate a cross-site scripting attack, I'll just give you the cliff notes, but it's definitely a vulnerability to look up if you aren't familiar with it. Cross-site scripting, very often abbreviated to XSS, is um, a content injection vulnerability against web applications. It, it does come about because of a software developer mistake for not uh, correctly 
normalizing or, or um, sanitizing user input. But generally what happens is in some websites, in some instances as a vulnerability, user input will be reflected into the page content. This might be immediately from the web address. So some parameter or input on the web address is reflected into the page body. And in that case, we would call that reflected cross-site scripting. Or there's other, uh, other cases like um, if user input is stored in a database and then later retrieved, we'd call that stored or persistent cross-site scripting. It doesn't matter. Let's not get bogged down into the technical details. There's a vulnerability called cross-site scripting where a part of the URL or a part of the stored content can be displayed to the user. And a content injection vulnerability generally means that the attacker can deface the website, often called a virtual defacement in terms of um, the web pages stored on the server aren't altered, but we can add content to the web page. So what we would do as an attacker is effectively draw a new box on the web page, put it at the very front of the view, and make it so big that it obscures the rest of the page. We've talked about this before in this podcast where um, people will deface websites to push uh, political messages, so-called hacktivism, those kinds of things. But in this instance, the ability to deface a website in such a way that the domain name doesn't change, and if the website uses transport layer security and there's therefore a HTTPS link, that doesn't change, but you can add content to that page, would be a very powerful attack for the sake of a social engineering phishing attack. And it's certainly something that staff members wouldn't expect if all you're telling them to do is check the domain name and check that the website is HTTPS. So if that's what you're doing, are we effectively teaching staff members that if the address is correctly spelled and it's got transport layer security, then everything is fine? Maybe that's not the case. Maybe, again, that's an oversimplification. And how common is cross-site scripting? Well, I've talked about this a, a few times on presentations and things. It's a, it's a vulnerability that I like a lot. But um, in terms of the, the gradings, it's a little bit further down than some people would expect. So we have this uh, thing called the OWASP Top 10. If you haven't heard of that, OWASP, they're a not-for-profit organization. They take a look at uh, web application vulnerabilities and they come up with this top 10 list of vulnerabilities that you should start with. If you're looking at getting into security, those are the things you should start looking at. And it comes out every three years, and for the last few releases, injection vulnerabilities have been at the top, and cross-site scripting's been somewhat further down. Interestingly, back in 2007, cross-site scripting was the number one vulnerability. But the thing to bear in mind with these top tens, these kinds of uh, views of vulnerabilities, certainly vulnerabilities in web applications, they're not necessarily the worst vulnerability down to the least worst. One of the things is, it's a balance of impact and prevalence or it's a balance of impact and probability of exploitation, those kinds of things. So injection vulnerabilities, yes, absolutely deserve to be at the top because they're very powerful vulnerabilities and they're a direct attack against a server, which are usually easy to pull off because there's automated hacking tools and things like that. Cross-site scripting, this vulnerability we're talking about here, probably should be a little bit lower because it very often requires a social engineering attack. But we know how effective they can be. Hopefully everyone listening to this podcast knows that phishing attacks are both very common, very easy to pull off, and surprisingly likely to be effective. Given a phishing attack and a cross-site scripting attack, that would be very, very powerful. How common is cross-site scripting? Well, there was a statistic in Information Security Magazine last year, in uh, July of 2018, that said XSS flaws were the most common vulnerability in web applications over the past nine years. 
So maybe sometimes we get biased when we look at uh, vulnerabilities based on impact and prevalence as opposed to commonality. So it's a thing to bear in mind. If you think cross-site scripting in the context of phishing is maybe taking it a little bit too far, cross-site scripting is very, very common. So what am I saying here? Well, don't restrict phishing to just looking for poor spelling and looking for HTTPS links. That's not going to be enough. Maybe you should teach staff members not the intricacies of cross-site scripting attacks, but the fact that those things exist. Maybe demonstrate some defacements and things like that so they know that if they see a correctly spelled domain, that doesn't mean everything is definitely okay. Show users a variety of phishing emails. When I see security awareness training, I very often see people um, just showing staff members the most common. So just showing them the, um, oh, your Twitter account has been locked, click here to unlock it, or your bank account has had a security problem, click here to review it. Um, those are the most common, but there's a lot of variety you can have in phishing emails. And I think you should show staff members a variety so that they understand there's quite a lot of uh, flexibility the attacker has. And also, of course, uh, explain to staff members that it's not always emails. Phishing isn't always emails. Okay, it's probably unlikely to be a malicious fax, but it might be a malicious phone call. And certainly if you have security policy that says things like, if you receive a malicious email, verify over the phone that the email is legitimate. Verify over the phone that you are expecting uh, an attachment. In theory, that sounds like really good advice, but sometimes when we're doing phishing campaigns, we can leverage that. If we have the email address and phone number of a staff member, which isn't particularly unusual, there's a little bit more work on the, atta uh, the attacker's side, but it's certainly possible, we might be able to send the email to them and then call them up and talk to them over the phone and convince them that the email's legitimate. And if their policy says they need to verify that over the phone, they might think that they've done the right thing, you know, following the letter of the law as opposed to the the kind of intent, the spirit of the law. Um, yeah, I think what people often mean when they say verify over the phone that the email was expected is you call up the sender. But maybe we can leverage that. And then finally, for my security awareness rant, um, there's this idea of using complex passwords. I'm not going to dwell on this one because hopefully everyone knows that. You should have long, random, non-deterministic passwords that should be unique to every website you visit. Um, some organizations still aren't getting that. Um, I, I know there's certain banks out there that have things like maximum password lengths, which still uh, annoys me. The bank that I bank with uh, have a password policy that mandates a password between 6 and 15 characters, and I can't use symbols in my password, which is just silly. But um, when it comes to enforcing complexity for users, don't presume that's the end of that story. If you have staff members who are using simple dictionary words as their password, like princess, elephant, password, those kinds of things, enforcing complexity, complexity being this idea that you have to have an uppercase, a lowercase, a digit, and a symbol, those kinds of things. It's generally three of the four is the requirement. I uh, don't think that's the end of the story. If I'm using the word password as my password and you just enforce complexity, I'm probably going to go to password one with a capital P, or something like that, summer 2018, elephant exclamation mark, those kinds of things. So yeah, and enforcing complexity isn't the end of the story. But one of the things that I wanted to point out, um, for those who are already aware of that, but maybe aren't aware of how we actually launch password cracking attacks as penetration testers, is um, through using automated software where we can teach that software rule sets. So I don't have a huge word list that's many terabytes in size that includes all possible permutations of password one, password two, password three. I just have a dictionary. 
Uh, I used to advertise using things like the Oxford English Dictionary because it includes all common English words and also some scientific words, planet names, those kinds of things. And then bolstering that with football club names, town names, those kinds of things. Um, but that doesn't necessarily include the wide variety of expletives that people come up with. So there's other sources, things like the Urban Dictionary, using online dictionaries, those kinds of things, where they include um, a lot more slang, a lot more expletives, a lot more um, football club names included by default, those kinds of things. So using something like that is is possibly a good word list, but using it just in its plain form. Don't, don't perform permutations. And then with password cracking, tool sets. If you're curious, if you haven't looked at them before, good examples would be something like John the Ripper or Hashcat. They're two very common password cracking tools. You can supply rules to these. So John the Ripper happens to be the, the tool that I use, and it has a, a particular language built in where you can specify how to modify words. So if you give it the word password to use as a base word, you can tell it, okay, take this as the base word, capitalize the first letter and add a, di a digit suffix. Add the digits zero to nine. Add up to three digits long. Use symbols that are reachable on a UK keyboard, those kinds of things. The benefit of this is it allows us to automate those breaking patterns. And if you consider the alternative, so things like um, leak substitutions, that's uh, using at signs instead of as or using zeros instead of os, those kinds of things. You can you can also teach tools like John the Ripper to do that for you as well. So yes, passwords suck and password cracking is possibly easier than you considered it. And the way that word lists work, if you've looked at all at password cracking, maybe isn't the way that you expected it to. It's actually simpler from the attacker's point of view. Um, so what do we do about it? Hopefully everyone's aware that you know, we have multi-factor authentication or sometimes called two-factor authentication. We have password managers and those are really good things. But the reason that I wanted to bring this up is a lot of companies in their security awareness training will tell staff members to use a password manager, but they won't enable them to use a password manager. So this might be um, giving them the advice, you should use a password manager, but not showing them how to. If you have non-technical members of staff, they could certainly use a password manager, but it might be easier if you gave them a guide on how to set that up. And if you have staff members who can't install software on their laptops, can't install apps on their phones, and you are not pushing out a password manager, how do you expect them to use it? Oh, okay, they could. Maybe they could install the app on their personal phone or those kinds of things. But what we're doing here is we're, we're pushing back on the convenience factor. And security is a balance between good security and, and convenience of use very often. So enable staff members to use better alternatives such as password managers, and that generally means training them on the use and distributing them. And that's it. That's my rant about security awareness training being ineffective. So just very quickly to summarize everything that I've been talking about, physical access isn't just tailgating. There's a lot of options there. And using things like anti-tailgate barriers are good, but they're not perfect. Having security guards are good, but they're not perfect. So consider things like this uh, diffusion of responsibility, these experiments that I talked about earlier, and see if you can come up with ways to minimize their effect. And also consider things like automatically locking staff machines, at least on perimeter devices. Intruders might not need to go past reception, so that's a thing to consider. Phishing isn't just emails, it's, well, faxes as well, but also phone calls, text messages, and social media messages. HTTPS does not stop phishing like at all. It's good for security, but generally in the context of phishing, it has no effect. So teach staff members that caveat. For a lot of security stuff, it's 
there's a general rule and then there's ifs, buts and caveats. And I do think we should teach the staff members those caveats. Don't simplify your security awareness to the point that it's no longer effective. And of course, passwords suck. So maybe you should enable staff members a better alternative. Consider distributing password managers and teaching staff members how to use them. And that's it. <laughs> that's our security awareness rant. Do you think there's any lessons that I missed? Is there anything that I didn't talk about that you think is critical or a weakness of traditional security awareness training? If there is, please reach out on social media and let us know. Maybe that'll uh, reach into another podcast and we could talk a little bit more about bad security advice. And uh, also let us know what you thought of our last podcast. We did the interview with Graham Payne. It'd be really good to see if you guys like those interview style podcasts. And if you do, we'll get some more guests into the studio and we'll continue the conversation. <laughs>